Fulton's Comics and Culture Radar, a podcast that's on the lookout for what's good to read and watch. If you don't know who Milton is, let's ask Kiefer Sutherland's father what he thinks. Don't write this down, but I find Milton probably as boring as you find Milton. He's a little bit long-winded. He doesn't translate very well into our generation, and his jokes are terrible. This episode, Milton's guest is David Ottlinger, who writes about politics and culture at the Electric Agora. Hello, David. Thank you for coming on to the program. I'm very happy to be here. The reason I've invited you onto the show here is that I was very intrigued by this discussion you had on the Meaning of Life TV show with Daniel Kaufman. And it was about, at a very simple level, I'll just say it's about visual effects and special effects and why they work sometimes and why they don't work. And in contrast to a lot of the commentary on the internet, which I think is very lazy and useless on this topic, there's yes. terabytes of uh, stuff that I could oversimplify by saying uh, practical effects, good digital effects, bad. Right. Um, and you have actually challenged that notion and come up, you've devised a really interesting framework and you guys gave it the title the Lacanian principle of visual effects. And I'm going to recommend everyone pause this podcast and go listen to the other podcast first. But if they don't do that, could you distill the concept down for us? Yes. Well, thank you for um, your kind words and interest. Um, yeah, the show you referred to was Dan's Sophia show at uh, meaningoflife.tv where we did have this um, discussion um, because I I quite agree with you that I think a lot of the discourse around this has gotten quite cheap and just while we're swiping at that um, I also hate how it's gotten and I wrote about this um, a while back at the Electric Agora which is um, the magazine Dan edits uh, about the anti-3D discourse. Okay. Um, which is, it, it became really hip on the internet to say 3D is bad. And it became, um, in the same way it became hip to say, you know, practical effects good, um, digital effects bad. Yes. Uh, and, um, that was not my experience. I thought 3D was very interesting and added to certain films, and it was used in a really kind of um, unimaginative way in other films. And the real problem was some people were really thinking in 3D and incorporating that into the way they were framing and filming things, and other people weren't, and it was just an add-on. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and they were really shooting for 2D, but then occasionally they put these sort of sequences in. Um, and it's, what I have to say about visual effects and practical effects is similar. It's more that it's not that the tool is wrong, but everything hangs on the way the tool is implemented and what it's used for. And what's really wrong in a lot of those um, 
things that don't work, which I think we're all familiar with, um, is people using the, the tool for the wrong job. And that's basically the principle is there's, I think there's visuals we're meant to accept as real, as kind of viscerally there. Um, and there are visual effects that we're supposed to um, interact with in a more imaginative way, where it's not supposed to be totally convincing, but the audience is supposed to kind of provide a sense of reality or um, suspend disbelief in a different way. Um, and the problem I have is when the person doing the visual effects can't quite seem to decide which of these kinds of relationships with the audience they're going for. And that's when I think you get that terrible clash. Right. And, and so it's, it's not about a specific methodology of filmmaking or CG or a, a, a balance ratio or anything like that. You're, you're describing something more down to the intentionality of the aesthetics. Yes. Yes. Um, and it's the narrative intentionality too. Um, but maybe, maybe we should black up, back up a bit because I mean, to what extent do you think people know what we're talking about? Cause like you say, there's this, there's this dissatisfaction, right? It's sort of hip, hip to knock on these visual set of visual effects because we've all had this experience, haven't we, of going into um, a theater or firing up Netflix or whatever, and there are some effects that just look off. And and the thing that you mentioned that really kills it for you is that it, it takes you out of the experience. Could you maybe give a few examples? Right. Um, the, the, the one that galls me more than anything else <laughs> uh, is um, what they've done to Star Trek, Star Trek, the original series. Um, and the version I hate is the version that's on Netflix. And consequently, it's the one I tend to fire up if I'm going to watch Star Trek, and it's the one that most people who are watching Star Trek are probably using. Um, but it's this version is updated with newer visual effects. So there's um, the original show from 1963, and then people with computers have gone back and put in new and different things. And every time I notice it, um, it drives me absolutely bonkers. And it's uh, like the experience is like, um, like I, you know, I don't think anyone goes to peep shows anymore, but if there were still peep shows <laughs> and, and like the shutter comes down and it's like, or like somebody put their hand in front of my eyes and it, it was like, no, I was watching Star Trek. I want to watch Star Trek. Star Trek's from 1963. It looks like that. 
why are you putting in this other show that I didn't want to watch? And it, it's yeah, and that's exactly right. I'm, I'm the I'm, now I'm looking at the shutter or the hand in front of my face, and I'm not in space on the USS Enterprise. Um, uh, I'm now in my living room, <laughs> and I'm just a guy right. watching a show. So I'm as out of the experience as I could possibly be. So the the, the example Dan and I shoot over is there's a famous arena episode where Captain Kirk fights a lizard alien um, which is called a Gorn and it's a notoriously cheap costume or, or I don't know if it was cheap in 1963 but you know it, it looks right it looks very dated um, it, it looks like a man in a big lizard costume um, <laughs> And he has big, shiny metal eyes, like combine eyes, like a fly's eyes, or uh, uh, cicada's eyes, but but the color of steel. And, <laughs> you know, it's this obviously physical, practical thing. And then they put in, in the revised version, digital blinks, so they have digital eyelids coming over these eyes, and it, it's just, it's an incredible visceral feeling, I find, when I'm watching this, where I just, at a visceral level, just go, no. <laughs> yes. It's, a, it's that, that relationship to the image. Part of why we love film and television is the relationship to that, to the image can be so immediate and visceral and um, even though we know it's illusion, um, it can feel incredibly uh, real. And every time it was just, it, it's almost like I would prefer if the television just went to static <laughs> <laughs> during that moment and then came back. So, I mean, um, and this, <clears throat> uh, you know, people have complained about the updated version of, um, of uh, the original trilogy of Star Wars, which um, in Family Guy they did a thing where they were they were doing the the throne scene in Jabba the Hutt's palace where they have all those great um, puppets which uh, Jim Henson made, uh, and they're all different alien species and stuff. And then for the and then. The, you know, Peter Griffin makes a joke about, hey, there's a new one from the special edition, and then they just put in a, a sock puppet. <laughs> <laughs> like a literal sock with googly eyes on it. And that kind of encapsulates how a lot of, why so many of us hate the special revised edition of the Star Wars movie, because it the, the new effects just do not just cannot be melted into that old um, Jim Henson stuff. And right. in a way it makes, makes them both not work. Not only did the new, um, the new uh, digital creatures they put in there look wrong, but you can't accept Yoda anymore. <laughs> Right, because he he look it, it, 
having the digital thing in contrast to him just makes him look like a 1970s puppet. Whereas if I could watch the really original version, my eyes would adjust to the 70s and Darth Vader would not look like a guy in a cheap plastic costume with fingerprints on it and Yoda would not look like a little puppet. They would look like Darth Vader and Yoda. <laughs> and uh, But I can't do that in the special edition. So that's this question that I have. It's like, why? What? what is that? Why is that so wrong? What, what makes it feel wrong? Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I've been talking a long time. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I'm glad. I'm glad you went through that because you, you, you raised another question for me. But the the first thing I wanted to mention is that I think one of the strengths of your framework um, is that you know we all have our our taste preferences on things in general. However, as you were in your discussion with Daniel, uh, going through this worked, this didn't work, this worked, this didn't work. I found myself in hundred percent agreement with you, even though I don't necessarily agree with you on the quality of a given film overall, but the actual effect that, uh, that this mixture is having, I, I, I find that your, your, your parameters here are kind of independent of taste. And mm-hmm. so I, I think I think it's a really useful framework. When I, I want to challenge you on just a couple of details about. Oh, can I can I, can sure. I respond to what you just said first? Because uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I agree that I or I hope what you say is true because that is what I'm trying to do. Is um, so a lot of this because we're talking about visual effects. We're naturally going to be focused on um, a lot of sci-fi and. Uh, action and stuff that uses a lot of these effects. Although we don't have to limit ourselves to that. We can talk about um, uh, you know, uh, Cousteau and um, high art films that sometimes use uh, visual effects. Um, but you know, there, there are different tastes that people have and you can kind of divide people in are you a fan of Red Letter Media by chance? No, actually, um, I, oh, okay. I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm not a fan of like uh, they they tend to uh, be kind of uh, nasty and mean and deconstructionist. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I tend to look for things that celebrate the things that do work. <laughs> okay, so well, there. Um, I, I just brought them up because. there are multiple guys on the podcast and they kind of fall in different places along the spectrum. Like there are some sci-fi fans who really like Star Trek and, um, oh, things like uh, The the Expanse or Alien, stuff where they really try to make space and technology that doesn't exist yet and all those things seem real and where they create um, uh, they pay attention to the science and they're careful to follow their own rules and that kind of stuff and then there's other kinds of sci-fi sometimes they call it science fantasy Mm -hmm. like um, oh what's the name of the show uh, from from the old sci-fi channel. Um, God, why can't I think of the name of it? The one where um, they're just 
a handful of criminals running around. Um, oh, this one's been recommended to me by a friend of mine, but I haven't seen it. It's like um, adventurers or time jumpers or something like that. Oh, God. I can't remember. Well, uh, I'll use Doctor Who. Um, as an That's example. familiar territory for me. Yeah, okay, good. Um, where it's just like um, a lot of it's just clearly fantastical and all of the science is, they even talk about it in the show, is wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. They don't yes. try to explain it. It's just, right. it's there. Um, and like a lot of the villains for uh, the for Doctor Who were they just made something that looked cool. It wasn't supposed to look realistic or like a real creature that you might find. Um, and, and I think that a lot of the visual effects discussion is people kind of expressing their um, where they fall in one of those camps. Interesting, interesting. And um, I, I happen to love both kinds of shows. So I'm very much not into praising one to dispraise the other. Um, I think that's all just kind of... Uh, Farscape is the name of the show. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, Farscape had a bunch of puppets that were um, very puppety and playing with real actors who were just in makeup that was obviously just meant to look weird and cool and not look like a real convincing creature. A lot of people painted blue or white or something. Um, so a lot of the stuff about visual you know, the bag against uh, computer effects or digital effects is really just people who are maybe on the more realist side um, knocking more fantastic stuff. But I don't think that's the real problem. I don't think that's the problem that causes everyone to hate the special edition of Star Wars or to get really annoyed at the digital effects and that they put back into Star Trek. I, I, I think the real problem lies elsewhere, and it does transcend whether you're in the, you like more fantastic effects or more realistic feeling effects. Um, it, 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 the problem, this is everyone's problem, as they say. It should be a problem for both sides. So even if you like more fantastic stuff or, or if you like more realist stuff, you're still going to experience this kind of clash. Yeah. I, I wonder. Um, I, I may be wrong here, but I'm guessing you're not a total absolutist when it comes to being against any sort of meddling with a pre-existing property. Like the examples you've been talking about are bring about that clash, and maybe it's due to the mismatch of the technology. Maybe it's just due to the mismatch of you've got entirely different visual effects people many years later coming back with an entirely different set of aesthetics, but really subtle things like uh, removing a string or yeah. 
um, my favorite example from the Star Wars special editions in the in the scenes on Hoth, when you're inside of the cockpit of the flying uh, machines in the original versions, the way that they made the mat lines not be so stark was they, uh, they would, they brought down the opacity just a little bit. And once somebody points that out to you, you, you see that these speeder vehicles, you can see through them. Um, and so the new versions makes those mats harder and starker and you don't get that ghosting effect. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm pretty far to one side as being absolutist, but not totally. Like um, <laughs> another thing RLM pointed out is that like in Star Trek, the motion picture um, there, there are these stuck like things stuck in the frame where it's just a, like a purely technical error where basically oh, okay. there's these, these black dots that are just, um, you know, like it could be something as simple as somebody didn't wipe a lens, and when yeah. people do, when people do that, um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I'm much more sympathetic to that. Or maybe if they enhance in very small ways. One very interesting one was um, The Exorcist, um, which is moving us beyond sci-fi. Um, there was a revised version of that. A kind of alternate version, basically because William Peter Blatty wasn't happy with all of the decisions Friedkin had made. Um, his and so at the end of the movie, um, sorry, well, you really should have seen The Exorcist if you're listening to this. So, <laughs> spoilers for The Exorcist at the end of the film, the priest gets the demon to leave the little girl that it had been possessing and go into him. And for the, um, the, the newer version, there were digital effects by then. Um, they, when we see the demon kind of take over his body for a moment and they put this digital effect on his face, um, where it's, you know, you can see for a moment the demon's face over his face and you can sort of see something supernatural happen. And I thought that that really enhanced the film. Interesting. Um, it, interesting. It, it makes that moment more, more resonant. Um, so little subtle things like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe if when he went, when Lucas went back and did the special edition, if he made like the lasers look different or if he enhanced the lights, you know, that you can see in the starship. Um, I would have been sympathetic to that. I am an absolutist in that. I also want the original version. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me throw on this, on this vein, let me throw one other one at you. Have you seen online the fans who have figured out a way to digitally change the sixth doctor costume from doctor who no are you familiar with that costume is that the colin baker costume yes yes it's a, it's an explosion of circus clown primary color craziness yeah 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 yes i'm familiar with it yeah and 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 um 
for many of us, <laughs> the costume is so terrible that itself, its its mere presence in every one of his episodes kind of diminishes every story that he's in. But these fans have found a way to sort of make it uh, monocolored. It's still kind of loud, but it's far less annoying on the eyes. So if the BBC actually used this technology and remastered all of the six Doctor stories, I would be on board with that one. <laughs> I'd have to see it. That's interesting. I might look that up. So when I was fascinated by your framework, I, I tried to think of some examples that would challenge it because at the, at the beginning I was, I was hundred percent on board and I thought, okay, wait a minute, let me try to poke at this a little bit. And there were a few examples I wanted to ask you about, and I know you haven't seen all of these. Um, apparently you've started watching the Mandalorian. How far into it are you? Barely at all. Uh, I think I just done the first episode, but go ahead. What, what is it? What is your, um, is your uh, overall impression of the quality of the effects work on the show? I, you know, my first reaction just to like turning it on was it was maybe the first time I felt like I was in the Star Wars universe since watching the original trilogy. I got a little bit of that feeling from The Force Awakens, but. Uh, I, I felt it way more here. So I, I really liked it a lot. I had that same sensation. And then um, I'm, I'm going to spring a crazy thing on you if you don't know this yet. How familiar are you with the way that they are filming that show? Not at all. Um, I will try not to spoil it too much for you, but I think this is a quantum evolution in filmmaking technology. And I think a lot of the concerns that you're raising in these various clashings of, of how it's a challenge to integrate digital and practical effects along these axes of like imaginative, imaginative aesthetics versus reality-based aesthetics. I think they've sort of absorbed all the lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and they, I think they've cracked the formula to at least within this universe um, give a coherent experience that's not going to violate those things anymore. And the way they're doing it is they've created this gigantic stage with a almost 360 degree wraparound LED screen background. Mm. And they actually film computer graphic backgrounds that are projected by the screens and the actors and the costumes and various pieces of practical uh, set design are within it. And when they photograph it, it all looks real. Cool. Yeah, that is remarkable. No, I, I, that's, it's kind of perfect that I didn't know that because I've, I've watched a little bit of the show and I did not notice that the sort of division between the larger environment and the immediate environment at all. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. I, I knew that something was up. I had heard some rumors, and I watched the show when it immediately dropped. Um, so I kind of had my you know, antenna up, but I didn't really see anything. And some of the more pedestrian uh, locations that you would never have thought were a visual effect 
are in fact visual effects. So I, th- I think they've managed to cross a threshold with this. So once you're finished with the show, I highly recommend going to Dis- Disney Plus and watch the extras that they've created for it. And they go into massive amount of detail about how they're producing it. Yeah. Well, as far as my kind of framework, uh, and Dan and I got into this a little bit, um, what, what I'm committing myself to is that when you have practical seeming effects and things that are um, meant to be accepted as real by, by the viewer, and you have things that are more um, fantastical that the uh, the other per- the viewer has to kind of um, treat them as impressionistic or as representational. Um, and when you put these two things together, they clash. I didn't right. say the clash was necessarily bad. You can have things clash deliberately. Uh, we talked about who frames Roger Rabbit, where mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. supposed to be this huge divide. Uh, the When the cartoon people and the real people are interacting, they're supposed to look like they don't go together. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. They want to create that effect with the audience. So there the clash can be used positively. And I was thinking after Dan, after we had our conversation, um, Saturday Night Live sketches, right? Because they love to put the Avengers in that, or they play. If, I don't know if you've watched The Boys, but they they play. I haven't watched it yet. Uh, okay. Well, if you don't like nasty, you're not going to like The Boys, but because um, <laughs> it's a super mean, nasty show. But um, they deliberately make the superheroes look kind of silly. Okay. Um, in you know, there's the Wonder Woman costume, which is really looks almost like a kid on Halloween, and uh, particularly they have a lot of fun at the expense of Aquaman in this. Okay, so <laughs> the Aquaman a- analog is just in this ridiculous bright green, silly thing with fins that just makes him look absurd. And they're, they're obviously doing that deliberately because the whole show is about this clash between it's as much a commentary on superhero storytelling as it is about superheroes. Because for uh, David Masicelli, um, who was an illustrator for uh, Batman Year One, which is a very famous Batman comic. Uh, Possibly the greatest ever done. Um, he wrote a kind of um, afterword to Batman Year One and and for later printings which was uh, in comic form Uh, and he commented on this, there was a turn towards realism which happened in comics in like the 80s and then which was brought to the screen basically by Christopher Nolan and has really brought a new era. Uh, well, it became hugely influential and it's a lot of what Marvel was doing with the 
all those films is they brought superheroes into more or less the real world. Um, and David Mazzuccelli points out, the more you do that, the more it's possible to make the heroes look ridiculous. And he just draws a Batman where um, he can, you can see like where his costume is sewn together and it just looks like a guy in a silly cowl. Mm -hmm. And there's always that tension, but in the Saturday Night Live sketches or in the boys, when you're really kind of making fun of the relationship between superheroes and the real world, you want to create a big clash because that's where you get your comedy and that's where you develop this sort of uh, theme. Theme in the boys is basically in the boys, uh, and I'm not going to spoil the story, but the real world eats the superhero world. It's just the real world with its politics and money and crassness and the, the innocence and the sort of moral uh, good versus evil stuff just gets totally corrupted. Uh, and, and just um, is dissolved into the gray, ugly, ordinary real world. And that's what it's, a, that's what the show is about. Okay. So, okay. That's interesting. And so in that show, in the show that's about that, you don't want Aquaman's costume to look good. You want him to look out of place because his out of placeness is what the show is about. Interesting. Interesting. Aquaman can't exist in the real world. That's the whole point. So he has to look silly. So the clash is deliberate and important and uh, really adds to the show. But, and I pointed this out to Dan, the clash, when the clash works, it almost has to be deliberate. Or I, I have <laughs> no example of the clash working um, when it's not deliberate. Because the boys, the, the person who designed the costume for the boys knew exactly what they were doing. So the person making the physical costumes understood the narratives and the themes of the show and built the costume accordingly. And that's why it works so well. And I seriously have a I'm huge into uh, the boys. I think it's one of the best, best shows of the streaming era. I will definitely give it a try. I will give it a try. I have I have two more examples I want to ask you about, and unfortunately, uh, we talked a little bit before that episode, and I, I think you haven't seen either one, but I, I think they could they could still foster some discussion. Um, yeah. One one example that I struggle with reconciling with your framework um, is an aspect of the movie Rogue One, which unfortunately you haven't seen, right? No, I haven't. I've seen some of the clips just because I, I was interested in kind of because I, I am a Star Wars fan, and because I'm a Star Wars fan, I haven't seen anything since um, the Force Awakens because I just got I can't deal, I can't deal. <laughs> so I just got <laughs> out. And I'm, I'm by the way, I'm really happy with that decision. 
but yeah, but, I, but because I'm interested in Star Wars, I've watched some of the reviews, so I've kind of seen some of the things that people have complained about or praised or etc. I'm fascinated by one part of the effects that um, runs a little bit counter to my expectations. If I adopt your framework, and I'm I'm a I'm a full time devotee of the religion of the. Otlinger slash Lacanian principle here. One that I, I, I worry I can't reconcile yet. In Rogue One, they made the decision to create some entirely digital humans and have them interact with other humans. Um, not aliens, not intending to be anything, whatever. Uh, and this is in order to convey iconic characters from the franchise in the look and feel that we have grown accustomed. Um, and uh, I will spoil the identities for you. Unless I you already reject. know. No, I okay. already know. Go ahead. Okay. Yes. So, so they, they did a digital Peter Cushing to uh-huh. reprise Grand Moff Tarkin and they did a digital Princess Leia um, uh, to reprise Carrie Fisher. And I was struck by the fact that at least in my experience, one of them worked shockingly well and the other one failed. And I was wondering if there's maybe something that is maybe just purely down to the execution. Maybe there's something inherently easier about doing a digital old man versus doing a young woman. Uh, but uh, the Peter Cushing was very convincing and I've talked to non-nerds who saw the movie and didn't even realize that that was a digital actor. They just thought it was a real person. Mm-hmm. Whereas everybody knows who Carrie Fisher is, the digital version of her just didn't work. That That's interesting. Um, it's... So, again... My principle here is not that um, digital and realistic or that digital and practical effects cannot be combined because I've seen many films where they're combined and it works quite well. Yeah. It's, a, it's only a restriction on how to combine it. Now, uh, you, you surprised me in that uh, everything I heard has been people complaining about both. Um, which fits comfortably with my principle. But if people experience it as, hey, there's an old man, then that's not in tension with my principle because the digital effect is so realistic that it goes, it it's no longer imaginary seeming. Mm-hmm. So uh, it sort of transcends the principle by being so, um, by having such verisimilitude that um, it reads to the eye as someone who's really there. So the people who accepted the Cushing program, uh, exactly, they it worked for them because they didn't realize it was an effect. Right. So then that agrees with my principle. Because yeah, I think I think there. Yeah, the reason I thought it could maybe be in tension with it was just because it's the same filmmaking team, the same visual effects artists, 
presumably the same, you know, intentionality in the tone, but there's also a, you know, a difficulty curve on the execution. And if you fail at one and succeed at the other, that's still consistent with your principles. Yeah. I mean, um, well, I mean, what you're saying is that Cushing seemed real and um, Carrie Fisher did not, right? Right, so, yes. But that's... Either way, that agrees with the principle. It's just that, um, as you say, the execution difference. So um, the, the, the clash that's being generated by the Carrie Fisher program is the clash between realism and imaginary because it doesn't seem real. And then the clash not being generated by Peter Cushing, if you, if you don't see a clash when you look at Peter Cushing, um, is that he does seem real. So either way, I, I don't think there's much to worry about. This is great. You have you have established. Let's carve it in marble. This is an eternal principle. We can continue to apply. <laughs> okay, I, I did not intend to start a religion, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I hope I'll go along with it. And the last thing I wanted to just give you, I guess I'm just going to give you a recommendation here because mm -hmm. I was fascinated by the experience of seeing. Gemini Man in high frame rate. Oh, yeah. um, the film itself, you know, is, is not very redeeming or interesting. It's pretty standard espionage thing with some goofy sci-fi stuff thrown in. Um, but the, the actual technical experience of the high frame rate, um, a lot of the ideas that you're talking about in the realm of effects, I think also applies to performance and standard filmmaking because within that film itself, it is in tension with itself a lot of times as to whether or not this high frame rate thing works. Like in, in my experience, um, kind of closer shots on the actors giving emotional readings were extraordinarily effective and just profound and moving and just eye-opening as, as far as like a, a new vista of possibility for cinema. But then within the same scene, you cut to like a medium shot and the actor might just be doing something really commonplace like picking up a glass and drinking or something. And something about the smoothness of the motion was just so jarring. It, it, it seemed like they were sped up a little bit. Yeah. Um, Cause I did and, see the high frame rate Hobbit and that was, I, I remember that experience of, um, uh, it was jarring, right? Yeah. It felt wrong. And that's basically why High frame rate seems to have basically died out. I'm not sure what goes on with that. I, I don't. I think that kind of jarring is probably has a different source than the kind of clash because it's not that it's narratively wrong. It's not that it's relating to the uh, the audience in a different way. It just seems to be something sort of either how our eyes or our brains work that we don't yeah. quite process that correctly. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, the way we relate to things visually is very dependent on our world and our experience. Um, do you know the molar liar illusion? I don't believe I do. No, no, I, so, I had to, I didn't even know who Lacan was. Uh, Daniel had to give <laughs> me a link. <laughs> yeah. Lacan, but you, I'm sorry to ruin your innocence there. You'd be better off not knowing who Lacan is. Um, <laughs> but uh, the molar liar experiment, it's a classic psychology experiment where you, you put two lines that are the same length. And then you put on one sort of arrows, sort of like like it's um, you put short diagonal lines on the end, so it looks like so one line looks like there are two arrows kind of pointing out. You know what I mean? Oh, I believe I've seen this one now that you mention it. Yeah, right. And then on the bottom one, you put the pair the little diagonal lines in the other direction, so it's almost like there are arrows pointing in at the edge of the line. If people people can look it up uh just google molar liar you'll see it but the point is um when they're when you don't put the diagonal on the end you see it at uh they look the same length, and then you put these little diagonal lines on them and suddenly one looks longer than the other um even though and it looks like one will look longer than the other to you even though you have seen them before and you they looked the same length before, before you put the diagonal lines in. Well, do you think... Turned, oh, go well, ahead. Go ahead. I, yeah, so people have gone and shown the molar liar experiment to Australian Aborigines and people who don't live in the modern world. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they don't see it the way we do. Wow. They, they just go, no, they're still the same length. And you know why? Uh, no, no. We live in a world of corners. I can see corners in this room right now. And I judge the space I'm in by those lines. And when I'm on the street and when streets intersect with other streets, and when I look at the uh, cables overhead, there are all these right angles that kind of define our world. And we get used to judging space by them. And when you put those little diagonals on the lines on the page it looks like those right angles by which I used to judge depth in my world. But if you're Aborigine in Australia or if you're on the Amazon, you don't live in that world of right angles. So you're not, you process space differently. Fascinating. Fascinating. So it could be with high frame rate. It's just because we're used to looking at films of a different frame. Right. Yeah. That we experience the high frame rate as jarring, whereas if everything came out in high frame rate, maybe we'd start to adjust. Um, it, it, I think it's probably something more like that, which that kind yeah. of clash is totally different from the kind of... The, the, the thing that I really want to zero in on is my principle. And this is where I think I can get at something deeper than the kind of cheap discourse we don't like on the internet is the problem is the narrativity of the effects. It's not a technological problem. It's not a technological problem. It's an artistic problem. It's a problem of uh, values and storytelling. That's the problem. That's what has to be fixed. 
it, it's uh, it's not that the effects that George Lucas used in the special edition were bad. It's that his taste was bad in putting them in there at all. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating note to end on. And um, I just want to follow up with uh, a standard question I like to ask everyone is, what's on your cultural radar these days? What are you watching? What are you reading that you can recommend? Um, so I really didn't like the first season of The Umbrella Academy, but I'm really enjoying the second one. And, uh, yeah, I, I love the weirdness of it. Um, yeah, that's that's been my latest binge <laughs> i'm glad you said that because i just started watching season one and i was a huge fan of the comic and for whatever reason i had hesitation to seeing an adaptation um but that sounds reassuring i'm glad to hear that yeah season one's a little hit or miss but uh stick with it cool cool well david thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate it it was a fascinating discussion and i i I uh, I hope you, you did say in your dialogue you're probably not going to write on this thing, but I, I hope uh, at some point I can change your mind on that because <laughs> I, I would like to see this idea spread more into the discourse. Well, thanks, man. Maybe I will. Uh, we'll, we'll. All right. Well, I think uh, I think that'll do it for us. Beautiful. Well, yeah. Thanks. That yeah, this was uh, profitable. I thought. <laughs> and when I'm I'm not. Uh talking to you or talking to Dan. I'm here talking to myself. Thank you to David Ottlinger for being on the program. If you would like to hear more from David, you can find his discussions on the Meaning of Life TV program called Sophia, and that's just on meaningoflife.tv. You can also find his writings on theelectricagora.com. Thanks again. <laughs>